Morning, Kings. Let's turn our attention to the Word here, the Word of God. I'm going to be reading from, if you've been here for any length of time, you know we're in the Proverbs. I'm going to read some uh, three passages from Proverbs in preparation for Pastor Bill's sermon this morning. So hear the Word of the Lord this morning. Proverbs 11.4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Proverbs 11.26. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. And lastly, Proverbs ten fifteen through 16 reads, A rich man's wealth is a strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. The wage of the righteous leads to life, and the, the gain of the wicked is sin. Thank you, Lord, for your work. We've been traveling through Proverbs through our sermon series, and I think we have two or three left. The book of Proverbs is a little bit unique. I'd like to dismiss the kids right now. (laughs) I don't think I've ever got that. The book of Proverbs is a little bit unique. It's positioned in between the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets in what we call the writings or the literary part of the Bible. And the reason that it's unique is that I think Pastor Lou said it best when he said it's written to give us wisdom. It's written as what we call, and he said was truisms. Foundational literature of the Bible that we use as underpinnings for our faith and gospel living. One of my favorite verses is raise them to know the Lord and they will return. That's not a biblical covenantal promise like the Bible has towards faith in Christ However, it's a foundation that we can live by and that we can place in our lives as Christians knowing that God, with that wisdom, will bless us. Now today, uh, in the past, we've spoken on several different topics, which is unusual. We preach straight from the Bible and we go through it verse by verse. Because Proverbs is wisdom literature, we've been picking topics. We've preached already on friendship, Pride, last week it was tongues, several other, and I think there's a couple more. But today the topic is money. Money. That's the topic pastors don't like to preach on. I'll tell you, last time I preached on gluttony and I thought I got stuck with it. You all know that song? Um, I got stuck with gluttony and pastor... uh, um, Nathan. Nathan seemed to be the pastor of money. But I got to tell you what. I'm very thankful I preached on this today and I got to study it because it really spoke deeply to my heart. And I hope it will to you. I hope I can convey that message today. So, with no further ado, let's see what the Bible has to say. Well, the rich get richer. And the disenfranchised, they're a burden on an entitlement system. Two not-so-famous philosophers that I picked, one Roger Waters said, money, so they say, is the root of all evil today. You know where that comes from. He is the lead singer for Pink Floyd, and that was the music to it. 
I think he left a word out of that verse, the love of money, but we'll let him go on that. My favorite, Zach Brown said, it's not where you live or what you drive or the price tag on your clothes, and there's no dollar signs on peace of mind. So, but we all have formed an opinion with money, and we all have to deal with it. I could fill a warehouse with all the quotes that there are about money. But we've seen debt, windfall profits, poverty, illness, and ill-gotten gains. And how times really haven't changed. For centuries, economies have fluctuated. There's been good times, and there's been bad times. Money management is a reality of life, whether we like it or not. We all have to deal with it. You can't exist without doing it. Most households, businesses, organizations, and even this church has a budget that we have to deal with. They're either rigid, careless, or somewhere in between. Um, But money is kind of unique. You know, it was interesting to me when the Bible talks about sexual sin, it tells us to flee. You just don't seem to be able to do that with money, do you? It's there, and we all have to deal with it. But what's really important is what God has to say about it. But before I go any further, I'd like you to know that in the book of Proverbs, when it uses the word righteous, it signifies godly or righteousness, meaning godliness. Now, the terminology towards the gospel when we use the word righteousness, it's a righteousness or a perfectness of life that's imputed to us as believers through Jesus Christ. But at this time, it meant a godly way of living. So when you see it in the verses today, think of it that way. However, a perfect, it, Jesus shares a perfection with the Father. And that perfection is what covers all believers and what makes us who we are and lets us stand before the Father. Let's, let's remember that all godly wisdom of wealth included is for declaring and demonstrating the gospel and for treasuring our Savior, Jesus Christ. First of all, I think it needs to be said that in Scripture, neither wealth nor poverty by themselves are sinful. The Bible doesn't condemn poverty or doesn't condemn wealth. It speaks as to how it's obtained and to how it's to be used. It warns how it can corrupt and can deceive. What the Bible really bears witness to regarding money is the condition and the focus of the human heart. Let me say that again. What the Bible really bears witness to regarding money is the condition and focus of the human heart. So I've selected three aspects on how I will be able to deliver my message or my concepts to you concerning money. First is monetary conception. Second, I've used monetary deception. Third, monetary deification. So let's jump right into monetary conception and what the Bible is trying to tell us there. Proverbs 11, 4. 
Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Proverbs 11.4. It gives us a point of view from God's eternal perspective. God tells us that riches don't profit or gain or advance or put you in a better position on the day of wrath. If your idea of money is a tool to be used to somehow give you an advantage, Proverbs 11.4 tells you simply it won't work. The day of wrath means God's judgment. And he plainly says that your financial status will not matter. You want to press him with the size of your bank account, the size of your portfolio, if the size of your portfolio is your primary objective. This verse offers a great caution. God is the creator and giver of all riches. The position money plays in your life matters to God. God reveals to us when money does and doesn't profit us. What he does say profits us is the pursuit of righteousness. Jesus asked this question to his disciples. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The righteousness with which we handle, righteousness with which we handle our money or profits are guided by the word of God. When God has no influence over our money or involvement, we are motivated by selfish greed. The righteous use of our money will bring with it a right relationship with God. We know through the gospel that the righteousness that we receive through faith in Christ was imputed to us by his sacrificial death and resurrection. His righteousness is our profit. Christ guides our hearts, which in turn affects our financial decisions. Consequently, our righteous decisions glorify God. One can pursue the world's riches, but the verse tells us just what it delivers, and it delivers death. It's a warning from our Lord. Don't be deceived by the allure of money or the power that you may believe that it holds. The righteousness through Christ, through faith in Christ alone, is the only thing that will deliver us from death. The scripture Matthew 6.33 addresses this best. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all things will be added to you. God will provide your needs whether you're rich or whether you're poor. Money is a gift and it's a tool to be used for his glory. Our joy is in him and his righteousness is our basis for our behavior first. But money can be a tool used for God's glory, but it brings with it dangers, and we can be deceived very easily. Many times the desire of our heart is for something we don't need, or something we never even really wanted. Or often possessions of this world become our obsession. The nature of our consumptive hearts is really driven to worship a created thing. 
Our rebellion sinks in deep. And when we do this, we say, Father, I accept salvation through Christ, but don't tell me how to raise my kids. Father, thank you for eternal life, but stay out of my bedroom. Father, Christ is my Savior, but get your hands out of my pocket. That's the nature of our rebellious hearts, and it runs deep. You can add any verse you like to that last part, and you know what? We all do it. This type of idolatry can be very deceptive. So let's look at the warnings that, of Proverbs and see what God has to say about that. Monetary deception. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. In studying this verse, I'll share with you, it gave me some great convictions as I read the commentaries on it. Um, I have a business degree, so everything that I've been taught was challenged here. And I'm going to speak about that at the end. I don't want to go in too deep now, but I'll just tell you that from this verse. And by this verse, I chose three false hopes money offers. One, it offers power. Proverbs 11:26. From this verse, we see the power man has regarding wealth. In this verse, it tells how one is able to manipulate the marketplace and its supply with his product. In this case, his product is grain to increase his profits. He knows when he holds back gain from the marketplace, he can sell it at a later time and drive prices up. Thereby, it'll increase his own profits. He's not concerned about others. He's not concerned with the effect that withholding this product in the marketplace will have on his brethren. The allure of a swollen money sack is no match for the plight of the impoverished. The power that he exalts over others is purely selfish and brings them harm. The pull of his heart is simply greed. But in contrast, the second piece of the verse bestows a blessing on the one who sells it. The verse describes the relationship between cursedness and greed and contrasts it with blessedness and a caring heart. The temptation of monetary seduction and gain is intense. It's powerful. And here God reveals to us his truth. Harming others in the pursuit of personal gain is ungodly. Let me repeat that. Harming others in the pursuit of personal gain is ungodly. We are warned. Point two. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. The wage of the righteous leads to life, the gain of the wicked to sin. The false belief that money equals security creates a real situation of spiritual danger in our lives. The power of money feeds a, really a misguided notion of a safeguard from harm. It promises the purchase of the intangible, a security that is eternal, which is a complete misunderstanding and misinterpretation. 
There is no other eternal security outside of Christ. And to use money, power, or anything else to achieve such is idolatry. Bernard Clairvaux, who was a Catholic cleric, said this, to see, to see a man humble under prosperity is the greatest rarity in the world. Now, like the wisdom literature, that is not a proverb, but the quote that Mr. Clairvaux said implies that prosperity gets right in the way of humility. Now, I don't think this verse holds up true. I have seen a lot of people who have been blessed by God and prosper and use their wealth to honor God and to glorify him. But in essence, the statement is true. Once money is there, many people turn from God. They don't need him anymore. Their wealth becomes their God, and they live accordingly and such. Likewise, in the second part of this verse is the ruin of the poor. Their hope for wealth delivers the same false promise of security that the rich man has. They cling to the hope of money because they believe only then will they have the security that they so deeply long for. But it seems like a double whammy. Their hopes are pinned on the wrong thing and their sense of security is misplaced. Hope and security hinging on wealth wrongly removes the focus from the true and only grantor of hope and security, Christ and Christ alone. Verse 15 compares the people's wealth to a fortified city. And unlike our modern cities today, in proverbial times, many cities were surrounded by a fortified wall. The wall's fortification protected those inside from attack of wild animals, foreign armies, foreign armies, and marauding criminals. Criminals who were captured inside the wall were put outside the city, which offered further protection for its people. And a fortified city also offered a place where business could conduct itself with a protected environment with limited concern for unsafe situations. It gave its inhabitants a real shield from the threat of attack of their security and their wealth but not God. The wisdom of Proverbs exposes the danger of the false promises here, that money provides security. Now there's nothing wrong with a walled city, and it's probably a smart thing to live there in those times, and in a secure place today if you have one. But only one thing offers eternal security, and that is Christ alone. Wealth, as Proverbs reveres, is a sinner's alternative to God and that is the real danger any alternative to God is idolatry Proverbs 18 10 and 11 discloses the real fortified city listen to this I don't have it on the board the name of the Lord is a strong tower the righteous man runs to it and is safe a rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination alone the human need to feel secure is really a natural one. And it was put there by God. However, there is a real difference between what makes us feel secure and what actually makes us secure. 
only Christ can truly secure us. We are deceived when we believe that the world can offer us that kind of security. I'm not talking about temporary security, a good job, a healthy family, or a protected dwelling. I'm talking about only what Jesus can offer. And he made it very clear in John 10, 28, because Jesus himself testifies this. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. Where we put our trust matters. Where is our identity? Well, let's see what Proverbs says in my last point, identity. Remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and profane the name of my God. When we identify ourselves by the size of our bank accounts, our belongings, our possession, it reveals what we value the most. What we value the most, think about it, is our God. If that's money, it's an idol. It's false and it deceives. To identify with any idol offers a false hope, false power, and false security. But in this verse, do you think that the author knows his identity? He belongs to the Lord. He asks simply for his daily bread, basic sustenance. He fears that either wealth or poverty could change his relationship with God. Furthermore, he contemplates dishonoring God by being impoverished and fears becoming a thief because he recognizes his sinful heart. Notice that to this author, neither wealth nor poverty can offer him only what God does. That's really been the point behind these three examples. Power, security, and identity found in money are lies. Our power, security, and identity are found in Christ. Our hope is in Christ alone. Ask this question to yourself. I think it's been used here before. Do we use money and love people? Or do we love people and use money to God's glory? How you answer that question will reveal really where you place your identity. It's an identity born from the righteousness of Christ or is an identity born from a sinful heart? Being made right with God can never be obtained from money. Righteousness is given through faith in Christ. Once we are made right through faith in Christ, we are to use the gifts for his glory. We've seen how money deceives us through a false sense of power, security, identity. Now let's look at money deification. Whose is it? Whose money is it? How do we glorify God with it? 
Proverbs 13, 21. Misfortune pursues the sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. 13, 23. A poor man's field may produce abundant food, but injustice just sweeps it away. Notice first that verse 21 says nothing about wealth or poverty. Yes, it uses the word rewarded, but rewards are not limited to riches. In fact, most prosperity doesn't even include finances. We prosper in love, we prosper in security, we prosper in identity and power in many other ways that don't even include money. Verse 23 shares us with how ill-gotten gain erodes and breaks down profits. Notice that there is abundant production in the poor man's field. But over time, it just simply disintegrates. What does sinful gain do? Well, we know that sin separates us from God. We know that faith in Christ unites us to God. We have no righteousness on our own. The righteousness that we have is a sanctifying righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And that glorifies God. Our prosperity is the joy of the Lord. And it's not in wealth. We've seen being made right with God cannot be obtained through money. We also saw that once we are made right with God, and once that happens, through faith in Christ and His perfect righteousness, there is a proper and right way to handle money and escape its false hold on us. Philippians 3.8 Indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul here boldly declares in this letter to the church in Philippi where his identity is. So are his power and so are his security. He tells all believers in the Philippian church that he is not the owner of his righteousness and that it is given to him through faith in Christ. So what have the Proverbs taught us concerning money and righteousness? I've chosen several. Proverbs 10, 6, says, the wage of the righteous leads to life, the gain of the wicked to sin. 10.16 testifies that the accomplishment of the wicked is sin, but righteousness profits in life. Proverbs 11.1 A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is a delight. God is glorified when dishonest gain is rejected, as Proverbs 11.1 just testified there. Proverbs 38. Remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. The Lord is honored when he is above all else in the heart of a believer, as Proverbs 38 just demonstrates. Jesus was asked about money. 
specifically about paying his taxes to Caesar. Jesus told his followers this, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God. Jesus in that statement revealed to them what they owe men they should pay. But rendering to God what is his is a much more profound and deeper statement because it demands a deeply intimate question. And only Jesus could do that to us. What is God's? Have you asked yourself that? What does God have? What has he given me? It's a pretty simple question when we answer it in the sense of he owns everything. But the reality is, as the examples that I gave you before, we tell God, thank you for your salvation but keep your nose out of parts of my business that are my idol. Jesus was asking them boldly, who is God to you and what is his? And that's a question we all must answer. As the band comes forward, I'd like to share my personal enlightenment. I have a degree in business administration and a minor in economics. When I studied these chapters here, it was clearly brought to my attention that the biblical understanding of knowledge is not for my personal profit, although profiting is not sinful. It is communal and for the benefit of his people. It weighed heavy on me because throughout my college years, the concept of capitalism was taught, which is profit-centered. It would have been foolish not to hold product back from a market in the capital system if it drove prices up. And although, as a Christian, I behaved differently in my personal life, I still held that concept deep in my heart. This scripture convicted me. It'll change me. It'll change how I vote for people. And many times people come to me for advice on business. It's going to change the advice that I give them. God graced us with his possessions, belongings, and money. His love was so great that he gave us his best, his son. A pursuit that led his son to the cross. A cross that gifted mankind with salvation. Eternal joy and union with our creator. The cross was God's plan of love for his people. A people who shared the same faith in their savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel is that message. It frees us from the enslaving bonds of wealth. Christ's life showed us how this message of grace, along with the Holy Spirit, transforms us to a likeness of Jesus, a righteousness given through faith that brings glory to the Father. To glorify God is the end-all purpose of mankind, reflecting his image that we bear of our Creator. Jesus did not save us by giving part of himself, but by giving all of himself. John 16, 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. May you also know him as your Lord and Savior. He calls in prayer, Father, I'm grateful, Lord, for this time you've given me to bring your word to your people. Father, be with them today and be with us as we go forward 
and take this understanding that you give us, place it deep in our hearts, and let us glorify you with every gift you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.